Amen. This is amazing grace that you would bear my cross. You laid down our lives so that we could be set free. I'm so honored to, to be here just to chat with us today. Um, Father, we just want to come before you thanking you for this opportunity. Thank you, O oh God, that we can hear from you. Mighty God, I pray that I will avail myself to be used by you, that I will allow myself, O oh God, to be your vessel today. We pray, O oh God, that you do us a tune our hearts and our minds to you. We pray, O oh God, we, we thank you, O oh God, that you will, you will move upon our hearts and that change will happen. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the last, well, for the last, Six weeks, Pastor James have been on that Go series. And so today we're just going to continue talking about Go and the kingdom of God. So last two weeks she talked about trading your, your mina. And that really spoke about investing in the kingdom of God for the service. Service to benefit, using your gifts and talent to benefit the church. And today, today we're going to continue talking about service to God, but what the kingdom demands of us, and knowing that the kingdom of God is worth everything. Everything, in addition to our gifts and talent, it's worth everything. But I think it's important, even before we talk about, you know, awesome or priceless the kingdom of God is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that you hear often, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. But if you were to answer, like, what exactly is the, is the kingdom of God, what would you say it is? Yeah, I know that song, Righteousness, Peace, Joy in the Holy Ghost. That speaks to the kingdom of God, absolutely. Anyone else, what comes to mind when you think about the kingdom of God? Pardon? It's within you, absolutely. It is within you. So essentially, the kingdom of God speaks about the rulership of God in heaven and in earth. And so when we pray or when we seek the kingdom of God, we're also praying for the rule and reign of the kingdom of God in our lives. This is when Jesus is actually in charge. He's in control. He has lordship over our lives. And like you said, Brother Mackey, it is, it is dwelling within us, as seen in Luke 17, verse 21, when he just says that the kingdom dwells within, that it, it lives within us. It's not about rules and regulation, you know, focusing on what to eat or what to drink, but really it's about that righteousness, Sister Janice, joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. That's what, that's what speaks to the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 27 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. See, essentially, we have become a part of God's kingdom. Or we could say that we are children of God when we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and repent. We are then called to be witnesses of Jesus and to tell others about him. So that song, This is Amazing Grace, aptly speak about the kingdom of God and the sacrifice that he made. He laid down his life so that we could be set free. 
He had, scripture also points to a cost that's associated with the kingdom of God. And um, with, the, with the individual who, was, who stumbled upon the treasure, what did he do? Perhaps he didn't have the means to purchase it right away, the field right away. So he saved up and then he got what he, what he wanted. The merchant was actually looking for this, this pearl. See, he knew what he wanted. Perhaps he had the means already and he was able to, to purchase He's, everything he had. Everything that he had, he used to buy it. So that tells me this thing was worth quite a lot. You will take everything you have to invest in, 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 in the kingdom or to this, this thing. It must be worth a lot to you. So as we continue to talk about the kingdom being worth it, I want you to think about what is the kingdom of God worth to you? As we talk, I want you to reflect on that question. What is it worth to you? Are you willing to seek it out above everything else? Are you willing to give up everything for this precious entity or this precious lordship over your life? The value of the kingdom is personal. It's personal to you and it's personal to me. And so I'd like to read Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 33, as we really appreciate the personableness of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus talking to what we might call his, his disciples or Christians. This is what he's saying. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't paint, they don't plant, sorry, or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why even worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown away into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Again, Jesus is speaking to believers. He's speaking to us. And there's a, there's a sense when he says, this is why I'm telling you. Why worry about this? It's, it gives you that, that idea that Jesus really understood. He knows us. Like he knows, after all, he made us. And he knows the things that we're easily susceptible to. He knows the things that easily beset us. Right, Sister Julie? He knows. And he knows that we have the propensity or a very high likelihood to worry. He knows this. He understands that those who are called to the kingdom would have earthly concerns about their personal well-being. To worry is, it means that fundamentally to worry is to have a fear. 
that's the, that's the crux or the underlining thing about worrying is that there is an inherent fear that is present. There's a fear that something bad is going to happen. So you think about the thing that you're most worried about. Really think about it. Draw it to mind. And think about what is the thing that you're fearful of. You're fearful that if this thing were to happen, something tremendous or something catastrophic might happen. Right? So bring it to mind and notice how you feel as you anticipate or you think about that fear. The, essentially, because he knows us, he knows that we're wired to have fear. It's a normal, it's a natural emotion, just like happy, just like sad, just like being um, excited. It's a natural response. And so he knows that we're going to worry. He knows and he understands, but then he encourages us. He says, this is why I'm telling you, I know you, and so I'm telling you not to worry about these things. These are... If you were to think about it, these are actually basic needs that we have. The need to eat, the need to be clothed, the need to be sheltered, and, and to be loved. Those are fundamental needs that we all have. And the thing about fundamental needs or basic needs is that if they're not met, grave thing is going to happen. Like if you don't get food, you're going to starve and you might possibly die. If you don't have clothing in the winter time, you can freeze to death and die. Or if you're in extreme heat or hot conditions and you don't, have, you don't have proper clothing, you could actually die. And so there's basic needs. He's saying that you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about it. What, what's, what's most interesting is that he's telling us believers because he promises, he says that... I am going to provide your need. Your heavenly Father knows you have needs of these things, and I'm going to give it to you. So it's almost a no-brainer that here's a father saying, I got you. Yet, we worry. Yet, we allow fear to, to, to overcome us and, and consume us. But he reminds us that I know I know what you have need of. In this passage, he calls, he's calling us, or he's calling his disciple into a deeper level of kingdom placement. What does that even mean? He's teaching them how to pray and how to see themselves as children of God, to see yourself, to own this identity. Allowing all that the kingdom is living inside of you, own this identity. I am a child of God, but what does that even mean? Now, Darius and Marcus can say, I am the children of Chris and, and, and Siobhan, but what does that even mean? Does that mean that they have a certain privilege? Does that mean that things, you know, they have access to things that maybe other children may not have? As a parent, I, I, it, it really brings into perspective when he says, I know what you, what you stand in need of. I am going to take care of you. I want my children to know that when I say I got you, that they feel secure in that. So why doesn't it, why is it so easy for us to negate these promises or forget them? Not negate, forget them. 
as heirs of the kingdom, their earthly, their primary earthly concerns are surrendered to the Heavenly Father, who not only understands their needs, but he's the very one who provides them with all they need. God the Father knows every need. He knows every need that you have. And he promises to provide for them. And so when the fear comes up, because it's inevitable, like I said, it's a natural way, a natural emotion. When the fear comes up, which it will, what do we do? Are we consumed with fear that, oh my God, he said not to worry, and here I am worrying. Should I be consumed now with shame that I've done that thing, even though he says I don't have to? No. He's not condemning us for it. I think, well, for me, what I do when I am when fear arises in my heart and I, 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 I can notice it and it's building, what helps me is to go back to the promise. What did he say about this thing? I got you. I know your need. I understand them. I got you. And so what happens is it moves the it moves the promise from a head knowledge that I know of this about him to a heart, a heart experience where now I can find peace in the promise. I remind myself, this is what he says, and allow that peace to be present in my heart. The alternative would be to become so consumed with the fear that it takes my eyes away from God, or it takes my eyes, it takes my eyes away from purpose, the purpose of even being saved, the purpose of even being called a child of God, to bear witness. So when we are wrapped up in the chaos of, chaos of our lives with the worry of tomorrow in terms of our basic needs, we're, we're not focusing on why we're here or why we were saved in the first place. Material matter should never be our primary concern. I think about this Proverbs, Proverbs 38 to 9, which reads, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is this God? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. When we become so filled with wealth, whatever that looks like, we get to a place of perhaps even seeing ourselves as God. We don't think of ourselves as God, but the essence of being able to provide for ourselves, this sense of self-reliance. I got myself. Who is this God? He's there on the periphery, but I can take care of myself. Or we might be so impoverished that we need to resort to stealing. And it may not necessarily mean you go to the grocery store and you kind of shoplift. That may, not, that may not even be what it means, or that may not be where you end up, but you might notice that you might be taking things from work. Or you might be robbing your landlord of, of their rent because you can't pay your bills. Or the bank who owns the home, they're your landlord, actually. So now you're robbing them because you can't 
pay your bills. And so yeah, here you are, this Christian speaking, yes, I believe in God, the owner, the, the, the creator of the universe, and you are so impoverished. That's not a good look for those who are unsaved looking at us, is it? So he's verse, the, 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 the passage is saying, give me my daily bread. Let me have enough. Not become so fat with wealth that I forget you or so don't have enough that I need to rob others. Let me just have my daily bread. One's pursuit of material things can stand in the way of one's entering the kingdom. Matthew 19, 24 says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth or the acquisition of wealth, getting wealth, can lead to pride and make us become puffed up. I got this. I got this. Who is this God? Jesus spent much of his ministry, actually, leaning toward those who were poor and marginalized. And if you think about it, have you noticed that people that are poor or may not have a lot of access to resources, you find that they seem to be more uh, desperate than after God? Have you noticed that? When I think about how churches are in, in Antigua, where I'm from, and how we sort of seem a little bit, we don't have, we have, but we may not have, in comparison to first world, we may not have all this access to resources and this and that, but it's a level of desperation or longing for God that is so different than a place that has so much. Think about that. There are lots of miracles happening in, in places you've never even heard of because they don't have the means. They, they, they're just solar because you know why? Their only source of help or need provision is God. That's their only means. And so they have no choice but to trust and believe in God and, and, and see him working in their lives. Is that to say that one should be ashamed of one's wealth. The preoccupation with earthly wealth, it can cause anxiety. So when you're preoccupied or overly consumed or this is the only thing you think about, I need to make the money, I need to make the money, that creates a lot of anxiety. And what is the root of anxiety? Worry and fear. The more we have, the more obsessed we, be, we can become. It's so interesting. Um, when I first started working, I, I got a really good salary. I never imagined that I would be making, this is an antique, I never imagined that I would be making that much money. And then I got an increase. And you would think in my head, an increase mean, well, more money in the bank. But what you find is that the more we make, what happens? the more we spend. Because suddenly, I can afford to maybe have more than one shoes, or several shoes, because I'm a shoes person. Or I can go out a bit more. Or I can own a car. Because they were calling me to offer me the bank was, you can get a car. 
And so the more this, this it is, it's, it might be a law of economics, the more we have, the more our spending power. And the more we become obsessed with wanting more. But I'd like to think that even getting more, even having, there's, there's still an inherent fear. What is that fear that keeps, that keeps me going? Even though I have my daily bread and then some, what is that fear that keeps me wanting more? What is the thing that makes me want to, I don't know, have several jobs or work maybe instead of 40 hours a week, maybe work 60 hours a week? Or always chasing the next thing? Proverbs 1, 19 says, such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. I think this life is, it doesn't necessarily only speaks of physical as in death, but I think it speaks to emotional death. I think it speaks to spiritual death, psychological death. Because if I'm so preoccupied with earning, that means I'm working more hours. Right? That means I'm spending a lot of time maybe away from my family. That means I'm constantly thinking about the next thing, the next thing. How can I maximize this thing? So I'm up late at night. I'm not sleeping as much. Right? And so what does, what does that do to the body? More wear and tear. You're more stressed. Maybe you've gained weight or you've lost weight. Right? You're not exercising as much. You can't spend time with your family. And spiritually, of course, there's a gradual fade or death. Because no longer do you have time to make God your priority. Because you're so preoccupied, or you, we are so preoccupied with getting things. Wealth or your large amount of money in your bank account it offers a sense of security, doesn't it? Especially now, when we're looking maybe at the brink of a possible recession. Having money in the bank, it offers security. It's a tangible, and by tangible I mean you can see it, so you believe it. If it's there, it means I don't have much to worry about. And here God is telling us to rely on promises. Come on now. Rely on promises. Something that is so intangible, something that requires Faith, not seeing it, but believing that you're going to be okay. Going back again to the fear. What is fearful about not having enough for you? What is fearful about what will happen if you don't have enough? What would happen? What can't, what, let's say you can't pay you know, your mortgage, what would happen? What are you fearful of? So you lose your home, and then what? Because there's, there's, there's another fear on it, underlining that. Embarrassment? So, you feel embarrassed. What's underneath that fear? What another, what's another layer underneath that fear? That, the thing that, that thing that's really grounding this need to have. Jesus himself taught and modeled dependency on the Father. He taught us how to pray when he says, give us this day our daily bread. I was so surprised when I saw the same language that was in Proverb in here. Give us this day our daily bread. Take care of our basic needs. 
He instructs them to pray and to seek the Father's heart, will, and provision. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And so what we need to do for those of us who are pursuing wealth is really figure out what is the why? Why do I need more, more, much more than my daily bread? What is this thing that is fueling this need for more? There are Christians who are rich, and thank God there are Christians who are rich. But as a Christian who have been granted or given riches, you're not the owner of the riches, you're a steward of the riches. And so we have a responsibility to have, like Pastor James said, to whom much is given, much is expected. So it's not for you to go, yeah, look at me. I have, I don't know, a million dollars in the bank account. What do you do with it? It's for you to be a steward and to take care of those who don't have, to perhaps give to charity, perhaps give to the orphan, give to the widow. That is your responsibility. So thank God we have people that are rich, Christians who are rich. And even on Christians who are rich, that they can give and not just keep for themselves. I was thinking, as I was writing this, I, I reflected on a uh, uh, um, conflict I had within myself. So Chris and I are exploring the idea of buying a house. And my dream is to have a 3,500 square foot house. Now, I don't know if you can put that into a This is what HGTV did to us, most of us. We have been teased with the idea of having these large houses and that they can look beautiful, lots of renovation, and you can get the dream, your dream. And so, yeah, 3,500 square foot. Do I really have an idea what it looks like? Have I been on a 3,500 square foot house before? Maybe not. But that's what I want. That's what I want. That's my dream. I know what I want. I want my kitchen to be a certain way. I know my bedroom I want. I want a lounge area. And my bathroom, I know that I want a standing tub and a big shower and a walk-in closet. And it must span, my room must span from one end of the house to the next end of the house because it just needs to be big. It's my retreat. That's what I want. And as we're looking and exploring and asking questions, we quickly learned that way over our budget. Can't afford it. Cannot afford a 3,500 square foot house. It's in the millions, guys, especially now. When things are very expensive, maybe years ago it may have been reachable, maybe, I don't know, for us, but yeah. And so here I am, really wanting this thing, and I know that I can't have it, or if, or if we were to try, what would that even mean? Again, wanting more, it might mean a higher mortgage, certainly. It would certainly mean having to find more money to furnish it because it's a bigger house. And think about the curtains, for those of you who like curtains. They're not cheap. They're not cheap. It means more time to clean a big house. Like, it's just more, more, more. More taking. 
but I still wanted it. And so I had to ask myself, what is this? What, what, why? What is the why? Why do I want this? Do I need a 3,500 square foot house? Which might equal to five bedrooms? It's my, I have a family of four. The boys can sleep together. Do I really need a five bedroom house? What is the why? What, why? Why do I need this? I think, as I reflected on it, I wanted to go big out there, like I wanted to not make it about me and say, well, you know, it's the immigrant story. We come from a place for betterment and we need to show what is the outcome measure. Like, how do you measure being well off? Like, you left home with the intention of getting to be better, and so how do you measure better? A big house is a good measurement, I'd say. It's a good measurement. And so here I am trying again, knowing that it's not just about that, there's something else, something else inside of me that want this thing. Is it to show to my peers, yeah, I left. Betterment, this is proof. So when you come to my house, you can say, Siobhan, you did well for yourself. Look at this place. And inside I feel good, yeah. I did better, yeah, absolutely. Is it to show off? It's just pride. It's pride. That's the bottom line, that's what it was. And perhaps if I were to think of what the fear, the fear might be, I've, I've left home and I don't have enough to show for it. I don't have enough to show for this, having made such a transition. Do I feel a bit like a failure? Here I am, I've, I've gotten, I, I, I've been successful in my work, but I don't have much to prove. But yes, my, my peers, who are probably still home, are doing much better than I. And they have proof? Is that it? Is that my fear? That's prompting or propelling this desire for, for more. The answer to our anxiety is found in the early provision of the Father in heaven. We must be mindful because if we had, if, if I was persistent or insistent that this is it, we have to have it. If that was my position, what would that mean? It would probably mean my husband would be working a lot, having to have another job, and I would have to be creative and figure out how I can add more income. And that might mean not being able to be available for church as often and, and not as much time with our children, right? Ultimately, the greed for money, and money could be representative of other things, it robs us of life. And it stands in the way of the kingdom, the kingdom of God in our lives. It sabotages the work. In Matthew 19, the writer has Jesus teaching and healing the multitude in the, in the region of Jordan. And so here we have the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about marriage and divorce. And, you know, he's going about and he's blessing little children. 
And then there's this, you know, the story of the young wealthy man who asks about, um, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And who knows why he wanted to know? Like, he was, he's wealthy. Why did he need to ask in such a public manner? Maybe he wanted to show that his pedigree and that he had money, that he could buy whatever Jesus was offering. Who knows? Jesus advised him. Actually, he asked, I think, twice. First answer, Jesus told him to um, do good deeds. And he's like, yeah, I already do that. And then he probably, I think he told him that he needed to... Um, Keep the commandments. He asked, he asked three times. Give them the commandments. He's like, yeah, I already do that. He should have just left it there. Go by your business, continue doing good deeds, do the commandments, and be fine. But no. No. What else do I need to do? And so he got the answer. Go sell everything and give it to the poor. And what a sadness. You know, we, we, so when we read this story, you know, some of us can be quick to judgment, like, like, well, he's so greedy and blah, blah, blah. But I'd like to suggest that this individual was faced with a very hard choice because giving up everything is hard. It's hard. We may even say that he didn't understand what he was giving up to get. He didn't understand the value, right? The value of this kingdom. He didn't quite understand it. And so it, it seemed very impossible to give up everything, to sell everything for, and, and then give it, to, give it away. Because with wealth, it wasn't just about the money. With wealth comes privilege. It it offers access, access to places and people you may not have otherwise. Like you might be invited to the best parties or to be in circles of people that you, like we can't get into the 1%, the parties or the gatherings of the 1%, people that are the one percenters of the world. We would never be able to get in. It offered him notoriety, you know? Like he, it, it offered a lot. So it wasn't just about the wealth, it was all these things that were attached to wealth that made it so hard for him to willingly say, well, thank you, I'm ready to do that. And so he left feeling sorrowful. And Jesus says, it is hard. Let me, let me quote it specifically what he said. That it's easier for a camel to go through the eye than a rich man because of all those things. It's easy for something as big as a camel, which seems quite impossible. Think about, think about what that, that analogy is saying about how hard wealth and riches can be so attached to our ankle that it just, it just bogs us down from entering the kingdom of God. This thing that is so valuable. And yet, the kingdom is worth it all. And yet, it's worth it all. Jesus spent a lot of time quite excitedly talking to his followers about what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and using different, different 
parables to show its value and importance. You know, he talked about, he, he, he um, compared it to a seed, a yeast, the mustard seed. And really emphasizing the point, he really brought it back to the effect of worldly possessions and how much more the kingdom is worth to those who would sell all in exchange for the kingdom. And so I go back to that initial question, what is the kingdom of God worth to you? Are you willing to sell or give up everything for the kingdom of God? Like I was suggesting, I don't know that that young man understood what he was being offered. Give up this to get this thing. And so it's important for us to know the value of the kingdom. Going back again to that when we first started, we talked in, in, in Matthew 13, that is, it's precious. It's priceless. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he fell into it. He wasn't looking for the kingdom. He fell into it, but he knew when he saw it, he saw value. He saw value quickly. He hid it. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Literally, he suddenly stumbled upon the reality of the kingdom and sensed the supreme worth of his life being oriented to its purpose. See, he got a glimpse into what it would mean for this kingdom to be dwelling inside of him. He got a glimpse. He's like, this is going to change my life forever. It's worth everything that I have. The merchant, on the other hand, he knew what he was looking for. He knew specifically, I'm looking for a pearl. I know it's going to cost this. I know that when I find it, I won't have any hesitation because I'm willing to give everything because it's so priceless or it's, it's worth so much. And so when he found it, he searched diligently for the pearls. When he found one of great value, that choice pearls, he abruptly sold all that he had to acquire it. In a devotional for group, Rick Lawrence gives some insight into what he called the pearl in your mouth. <clears throat> Sorry. In Jesus, I'm just quoting, in Jesus' parable of the costly pearl, seen in Matthew 13, 45 to 46, the formula is simple. If you understand the value and beauty of the pearl, you'll give up everything to get it. I'm going to read it again. If you understand the value and beauty of the pearl, you'll give up everything to get it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like the merchant seeking to find pearl, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went. He knew what he was looking for. He understood the value of it. Do you understand the value of the kingdom of God? Is it worth giving up everything? Continue quoting, he says, you don't have to prod plead or prod or pander to get someone to pursue something that is universally understood to be both priceless and attainable. You don't have to convince anybody. 
We all know that Blue Diamond, because Google told us, is the rich, the, the most expensive and the rarest piece of stone, gemstone, is universally understood. So you don't need to convince me, or I don't need to convince anyone that this is something valuable. So once there's an understanding that this thing is universal, there's not much convincing needed, right? Once the superseding value of this treasure is determined, it's like when it's, when it's seen, people get so excited that it might even cause a stampede. Like if I were to produce a piece of, after telling you that this thing is the rarest, more expensive, and I were to produce it here, how would you feel? Would you want to get a closer look? Perhaps touch it? Uh, over a million, like three million dollar worth in my hand? I mean, you would be excited because you, both you and I understand that this thing is worth a lot. It's precious. So once you understand what you have, you don't need to convince others. But simply, continuing to quote, but simply most people have not gone all in with Jesus because they've merely been told by others that this pearl is a treasure. But they haven't arrived at that assessment themselves. So similarly, here I am telling, telling you about this blue diamond, but you haven't quite seen it yourself. So it's still a secondhand story. I am not very um, adept at art. I don't know much about it, but I know that there are certain paintings, i.e. the Mona Lisa is a common one, that is, I guess, tremendous, like it's expensive. And, but people that are in that world or have a, an appreciation for art, they may not even have the means. They can look at a piece of art and feel something. I don't feel anything. I like colors and I like, I don't necessarily like abstract stuff, things need to make sense. So that tells you about how my mind works. I don't necessarily have that intimate relationship or appreciation of art. I understand that it's valuable, but if I were to go to HomeSense and purchase a piece of a wall, uh, a painting, that would be sufficient for me. When Chris and I first started dating, like Chris comes from um, uh, luxury jewelry industry. And so when we first started dating, I had a Citizen Eco Drive that I was so proud of, like it's a Citizen. You know what a citizen, right? right? Like, that's, a, that's a big brand, and it's eco-drive, so I'm like, I'm so proud of my watch. And he laughs at me. He laughs at my, at my, piece, of, my piece of watch. And I'm like, but it's citizen, you know? And I paid, I bought it myself, and I felt proud about that. It, didn't, it was a few hundred US dollars, that sounds pretty, I'm like, it's a piece, piece of, good piece of jewelry. But Chris introduced me to this world of luxury watches, you know, names like IWC and Patek Philippe and Audemars Piguet and Hublot and Panerai and Piaget and Montblanc. But the difference between, look at your face, you're like, what you say, Siobhan? Exactly, right? I only know these things 
by name. And I got a glimpse that, because when he talked about it, you should talk to Chris about watch. He's like, he lights up. He's like a bulb. Because not only he sold it, he understood it. He understood how they were made. And then he had the privilege of going to Switzerland. And he saw these things. And, you know, it was just, he, he had a different understanding about the value of these things than I did. And still do. So maybe if he were to get one for me, it might increase my knowledge, wink, wink, Chris. You know, it might give me a better appreciation about this world. And so essentially, until you know the value, it might just be just another watch to me. But to Chris and those who are able to purchase these things, it's not just a piece of watch. It's an investment, guys. An investment. And if you were to think about the, unless people, unbelievers, get that experience about the kingdom of God, it's just going to be another secondhand story. It's just going to be another secondhand story. But we, you and I, we can talk and talk and talk about Jesus. You know, lots of talk. Yeah, God is good all the time, all the time. He's good. You know, those, those yeah, blessed to blessed to be stressed, anointed to be disappointed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. We can talk and talk and talk. But when we can't show that in our lives, that, yeah, I understand the value of the kingdom of God in my life. And he has lordship. I don't have to worry about my basic needs being provided. I don't necessarily have to pursue wealth. That doesn't have to be my primary concern. What is it telling to, is, what is it saying to unbelievers in our witness? Jesus calls people, but he spends little time selling them on the value of following him. He doesn't need to, he's not a salesperson. We don't need to be salespeople trying to convince. We know the value, but it comes down again to knowing the value of what we have and allowing that to come out, not just in speech, but in our lives. Instead, what Jesus does, he invites them to taste and see. That is why in John, John chapter 6, Jesus repeatedly describes himself as bread that we must eat to have any part of him. But the fickle masses who gather, they gather for sure, they gather to see miracles and all these different things. They were quite content to stay in the safe pasture of a, cons of a discriminating consumer, wanting nothing to do with cannibalism. He's described as a bread of life, right? They didn't want any part of that. Two weeks ago, Pastor James talked about the disinterest of people in the kingdom of God. People are just not interested and quite content to stay where they are. They rejected him based on his words, while his inner circle recommits to following him solely based on their taste. Just before this volatile interchange on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus reveals a startling truth. No one can come to me unless the Father 
who sent me draws him. Those who come are drawn because of somehow they understand the priceless nature of that pearl when they stumble into it. Just like that, the guy who found the field. And others may not even know what to do with it. They see it, but can't appreciate the value like I mine with art. Our calling is to reveal the pearl. Who is Jesus? In such a way that others can taste and see that he is very good. That's our responsibility. Once they see him for who he is, the rest is just human nature. We don't need to find surprising or we find surprising and unexpected and unexpected and overlooked ways to introduce and reintroduce the pearl and in the process, ruining people for Jesus in the process when you're overselling. And there are under, there are an unending number of surprising, unexpected, and overlooked ways, facets, sorry, of the pearl. All we do is reveal what is being, what's been hiding in plain sight, unquote. That's all we need to do. Bear witness of him in our lives. The kingdom of God via Jesus is a priceless treasure. It is worth far above worldly possessions. The song that we know, Lord, You Are More Precious Than Silver by Randy Rothwell, really captures the theology of the kingdom and the need first to be abandoned in all our desire to the Lord and then to God's kingdom. It says, Lord, You are more precious than silver. Lord, you're more precious, more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares to you. And who can weigh the value of knowing you? Who can judge the worth of who you are? Who can count the blessing of loving you? Who can sing just how great you are? Lord, you are more precious than silver, Lord, you're more costly than gold. Lord, my Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares to you. Lord, you're more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares to you. When we find it, we abandon all for it. Our lives are transformed and our witness will be far reaching and enduring. What is that saying? Once you find it and you understand the value of it, there's a willingness to give up the things that we have. And once that happens, our lives are transformed. We're changed and others will see it. It's inevitable. If you find that you're overselling the product, check yourself. If we find that we're really trying to convince, take a step back. After all, he, Jesus says, only those who are drawn to him are the ones that are going to get it. 
Others are going to see it and they're not going to understand. Like that young man, he didn't understand what was being offered. He wanted it, but he didn't quite understand the value of it. It couldn't, for him, it, there wasn't an equal, it wasn't an equal transaction. And no, it wasn't because the kingdom of God was much greater than his wealth and all the things are associated with his wealth. There's also that song, Find Us Faithful by Steve Green, which remind us that we all seek the kingdom, that we, that we all seek the kingdom of God. And once we have found it, we, like those who preceded us, need to share the joy of what we have so that others can find it as well. The song says, well, pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road and those who've gone before us lined away, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their, li their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that they leave lead me to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness, pass on through godly lives. After all, our hopes and dreams have come and gone, and our children sift through all we've left behind. May the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road we each must find. Here's this question again. How much is the kingdom, kingdom of God worth to you? Are you ready to give up all to follow the kingdom? Have you come to the place in your faith that you would sell all you have to buy it? Have you found it and taken the time to protect it and return to it to purchase it? To relentless, relentlessly search until you find it and are you willing to cast your nets to search for those who believe? The kingdom of God, as we're coming to a close, the kingdom of God calls you to come today. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath eternal life. And cometh not into judgment, but had passed out of death into life. Come to Jesus today and join in the work of the kingdom. That is the call. That is the call to those who are unbelievers. That is the onus on us. That our life will emanate and show the worth or the value of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. 
We thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We thank you, O oh God, that you've offered us this priceless gift. We thank you, O oh God, that you've allowed us, O oh God, the privilege to be called children of God and all that's associated with being children of God. To rest in peace and in comfort, we know that our needs are provided for. And we don't need to step out and seek, for you've already provided all that we need. We pray, O oh God, that we will take the mandate, O oh God, of reflecting you seriously and not be encumbered with the needs or the, the, the desire for things that are not of you. God, we pray for those who would have been shown a glimpse of this precious pearl, that they will be quickened, oh God, to purchase it with their lives, that they'll be willing to surrender their all and, 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 and run after you, oh God, we pray that you will have your way in their lives and in our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.